and welcome. My name is Patty Woods and I'm a career advisor in the Lazarus Center for Career Development. I'm so excited to introduce our guest for today, Smith College senior class of 2022, Kelly Coons. While being a full-time student, Kelly became a published author during a global pandemic. She can now add being an author of a young adult coming of age story to her list of accolades. Kelly, I'm impressed and so grateful to be able to talk to you today and hear your insights and journey to become a published author. I'm, I'm happy to be here. Great. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, we're thrilled to, thrilled to finally speak to you. So for starters, uh, tell us a little bit about your book. So Always is a young adult coming of age novel that's in the realm of realistic fiction in so far that everyone's, you know, a human, a boring human, just like us. Um, Always is about two autistic brothers, 19-year-old York and 12-year-old Andreas coming of age during a cross-country road trip across the United States. Awesome. And how did this, how did this book come to be? So I've had this idea about writing about siblings and autism for a while. Um, I'm autistic and so are my two brothers. Um, and in my readings, both about autism, uh, I was just kind of disappointed by autistic, like books about autism, quote unquote, really weren't about autistic people. They were more about uh, neurotypical people looking at autistic people and saying, man, I really appreciate my life because it's way better than their life, which mm -hmm. is uh, a really hurtful thing when you're reading and you're like, oh, okay. And also a lot of like young adult books about siblings, right? Siblings as living rivals, which was never my experience growing up. Uh, so I was like, okay, yeah, I, that would be a fun fusion of concepts. Um, and during COVID, uh, kind of this serendipitous opportunity came to be. Uh, a person contacted me via LinkedIn, claiming that they were the graduate teaching assistant of a Georgetown professor, Georgetown University. And this was like late May uh, 2020, so summer 2020. And I looked at the DM and I was like, man, LinkedIn's sure full of weird scam DMs, which there are a lot. Like, go on your LinkedIn right now. You'll get a lot of weird stuff. Um, but then I was joking about it with my mother. And she's like, um, what if it's not fake? Because Georgetown is real. I'm like, well, yeah, I don't think Georgetown University is a scam. Um, but then I was did some research. I'm like, oh, oh, it's a real thing. Oh, now I have to consider this. Yes. Um, and, uh, you know, COVID's a really interesting time in so far as not only you feel like you have to do everything, but at the same time, there's also like nothing. So I was like, well, I am doing classes online, but you know, I can cut out commute times to classes and stuff. And also I'm kind of sad right now. And maybe writing a book about like, you know, some nice, some nice people would help me feel better. So there's a little bit of a therapeutic component in there. So I, contacted this professor at Georgetown. His name is Eric Custer. Uh, and I got into the program and the, his program, Creator Institute, uh, its goal is to teach people to 
write you know, long form work and ultimately to get a 25,000 word manuscript to pitch to publishers. Why 25,000 words? That's the minimum uh, for a novel. A novella is slightly shorter and then like for certain like children's books, um, they'll be even shorter. But a, a standard novel, regardless of if it's YA or new adult, um, is, is 25,000 words. So that number didn't just come from nowhere. Um, so I made a 25,000 word manuscript with Creator Institute. I pitched that book to the publisher New Degree Press, and now it is a book that exists. Wow. Congratulations. What a huge accomplishment. And it all came from this direct message on yep. LinkedIn, which I'm a huge proponent of from this Georgetown professor with the creative His teaching assistant, actually. Teaching assistant. And it's the name of the organization is the Creative Institute. Creator Institute. Thank you. Um, and at the end of this podcast, I'll be, uh, I can give you the, the link to that resource as well. And then you inevitably pitched it and it was accepted. Is that mm-hmm. phenomenal? Yeah, Creator Institute helped me reach uh, a 25,000 word manuscript. I pitched that manuscript to New Degree Press, uh, which is Creator Institute's kind of publishing partner. Creator Institute, when you have your 25,000 words, they say, you know, you can print it, pitch it anywhere, but we have a relationship with this publisher. Um, a lot of, a lot of Creator Institute books end up making it to New Degree Press, which doesn't mean it's a 100% guarantee, but the real thing about Creator Institute and uh, similar programs is that it makes sure that even before the process of editing, you've already done some pre-editing of your manuscript. Like you aren't sending your first draft of 25,000 words out. Right. Because first drafts generally don't get accepted by publishers because even if you're an amazing author, you're more amazing after an edit <laughs> yes. or two or three. <laughs> yes, I, I hear you. So, so tell us, did you always want to become a published author? Short answer. Yes. Long answer. I was the type of kid who wrote stories in waiting rooms. I remember writing on like a, an app on my mother's iPad. Um, so yeah, I always had an interest in, in writing. For me, writing is a way to process the world and have control over how interactions play out. In real life, um, forgive the terminology here, but my fellow English majors perhaps will appreciate the terminology here. In real life, we're first-person limited, but writing allows us to be in the third-person omniscient, even if the final product isn't written in third-person omniscient, like always isn't in third-person omniscient. Can you tell us more about that, what that means? So someone like me who hasn't been, uh, was not an English person, what does it mean to be in the third-person omniscient? So omniscient means all-knowing. So when you're writing in the third person omniscient, you aren't writing, I go to the store. You write, Kelly goes to the store. But in third person omniscient, not only do you write, Kelly goes to the store, but I can be inside the head of the, uh, the cashier. I can be inside the head of the pizza. If you right. choose to anthropomorphize right. the pizza that I bought at the store. Um, in real life, though, we are just inside ourselves and we can try to intuit what other people are thinking, 
but we don't actually know. Um, Vincent's always is written in third person limited. So it's written, um, you know, Andreas goes to the store um, and we kind of see Andreas walking around and he can intuit what other people are thinking, but he's, he, he does, he can't read minds. He's, he's a a normal human, realistic fiction here. Um, But, and and I love this and I know our audience can't see you Kelly, but I can see you and I just see how much you light up when you're talking about this. And I can imagine that during COVID that writing in this way could be just like a really creative way to sort of escape I had them go to the store that's that's real escapism right there (laughs) (laughs) no it's it sounds like such a phenomenal process a creative process and um, one that uh, allowed you to kind of get into the mindset of the different characters Um, and this this wasn't something I was planning on asking you but to what extent did any of your family members um, kind of come up. Did you, did you use influences from your, I know you have brothers, were they influential to writing this book? Yeah, the very base of York and Andreas, um, York is closer to my twin brother, William, Mm -hmm. and my younger brother is closer to Andreas. In the final draft, York and Andreas are pretty different. My brothers, there's some base similarities, um, but I also swapped a couple of traits, um, not a terribly spoilery example, but uh, Andreas has a fear of heights, which is not something my younger brother Kevin has, but it is something my twin brother William has. So the very beginning of their characters were, I wanted it to come from real life. So I was like, okay, here's our base. Then I swapped a couple of traits around. And then I was like, if these traits exist, then perhaps this trait also exists. So the very beginning are my brothers and I hope the real life inspiration comes out but are they self-inserts my brothers no um this is not me writing fan fiction about my brothers going on a road trip gotcha okay so so not to disparage fan fiction i love fan fiction but (laughs) do your brothers my do your brothers like the book so my twin brother um isn't very much of a reader um, but I read him a portion of it and he's like, how is this person based off of me? <laughs> and then I went through the things and he's like, yeah, but like this person's like driving on a cross country road trip. I can drive, but I get nervous going on the highway. I'm like, well, you know, he's an upgrade of you. <laughs> <laughs> of the brother. Um, so I have, I have a question. So as a career advisor, I meet with a number of undergraduates, as you know, including you. And I get this question a lot from students saying, I'd love to be a writer someday. I'd love to have my book published. And I'm super curious for you to walk us through the process of you becoming published, because I know you've talked about any um uh, that you that a lot of writing can happen for anyone but the publishing process is different so can you talk mm-hmm. to us a little bit about that so i want to preface by saying that there are many ways to publish a book um but i i can talk about my particular process and this is not the process that everyone goes through and this is not a process that will work for everyone but this was a process that worked for me and i i believe can have uh, widespread uh, success. So first of all, not many people finish books. A lot of people have stories and a lot of people are 
motivated to tell a story, um, but either because they lack support or they have inexperience with writing long form stuff, um, they just don't finish, which is not a reflection of the quality of the stories that they tell. Um, something like only 2% of people who start books finish them. It's wow. kind of a disheartening statistic when you look at it that way. Wow. Um, yeah. So Creator Institute uh, was a class offered by, I say was, he's still offering the classes. Um, I think he, his most recent cohort is like an October cohort. Mm -hmm. um, which I, in the links that we provide, he, he, he advertises his new cohorts uh, fairly gotcha. frequently. Yeah. I think right now we're between cohorts. Um, so I paid for the Creator Institute class and part of the Creator Institute class, um, now this is actually when you get approved. So part of uh, New Degree Press's uh, uh, process is doing a crowdfunding component. So you do a 30-day uh, campaign on Indiegogo. Indiegogo, instead of Kickstarter, because I, I think it's just easier uh, documentation for tax purposes, uh, not a dig at Kickstarter, but that's the system I used was Indiegogo, but it works similar. Um, so you do a 30-day campaign and you crowdfund. Um, most people had a goal of 5,000. Some people had a goal of 8,000. Those were people who did hardcover books as well as uh, audiobooks. So though that money goes towards paying uh, cover designers and uh, recording for audiobooks uh, for the hardcover publications for doing a hardcover. So I only did a soft cover, so my goal was five thousand. I reached uh, about six thousand six hundred dollars, so wow. I, I reached over my goal. Um, I want to like crowdfunding is not a guaranteed success, but I think the purpose is more important than just raising money to cover the the editing costs, which are real. Yeah, um, the most important thing for me that crowdfunding was, is it was a test run of sorts of being an author. The unfortunate truth is that a good book is not necessarily a successful book. Uh, a successful book is, to put it in math terms, to pivot away from perhaps my English major terminology, a successful book equals good writing plus effective marketing. The book market is has a lot of people in it, uh, a lot of people coming at it from different views. In my New Degree Press cohort, I think we had like 150 people. So those were my competitors that I knew fairly well because a lot of them I you know, had heard about their work in progresses over time, uh, which isn't to say that you, know, you should try to publish you know, at 12 midnight when nobody's around. Like that's that's really not how it works. It's crowdfunding helps you advertise yourself. If you are a first time author, most people aren't gonna read your name and get you know great author vibes from a name. Uh, what people are gonna do is they're gonna 
remember you know a post you made on social media or remember a podcast appearance you had and be like this person you know said something that really spoke to me or this person was uh seemed really honest in their intents or this person had a message that i resonate with and that book becomes kind of a a representation in a way of you so uh so crowdfunding is a crash course in that. Yes, yes. This, that. Which if you fail at your crowdfunding, um, you do have to, uh, you can, I, there were people who did an additional 30 days and then there were a few people who dropped out of the process and returned the funds. But a failure at crowdfunding doesn't necessarily mean, you know, you're not charming enough. Uh, crowdfunding does have a big component of, who do you, who are you around? Are your peers, the people who already are kind of invested you, are they able to uh, commit socioeconomically? Which doesn't mean, you know, you have five people who give you a thousand. Um, having a thousand dollar donations are, are very rare. It's usually you have a bunch of people and you, you know, Facebook friends of friends, those kind of people yes. will drop like, uh, will drop small amounts. So, yeah. yes, this, I mean, this process is super helpful to hear. Like you said, it's one of many. And mm-hmm. I really like your point about your book could be re- a really good book, but not make it based on, you know, some of the marketing that happens. So I think that's mm-hmm. super important for people to know as well. Uh, thank you so much for sharing uh, a little bit about the publishing. And I'm, I'm curious now to take it in a little bit of a different direction and, and ask you a little bit about as now being a published author, what, what movements and trends are you seeing in, in the industry, if any? I think the biggest trend I've seen, and this was a big thing that the class I was in taught about, was the movement in publishing towards uh, author as owner, empowering the author. Uh, our teacher, um, both Eric Custer and the uh, head of New Degree Press, Brian Bees, are big fans of Taylor Swift. Um, she is not the first person to be a creator as owner, but she's a big name. And no one can deny that Taylor Swift has become successful. Yes. One of my <laughs> so, favorites. Absolutely. Yeah. So um, I also think related to that, um, there's been a movement of uh, if you heard of the hashtag we need diverse books. Yeah. Well, how does one get diverse books? Well, you need diverse authors. You need yes. people telling from their own experiences. And that doesn't mean only memoirs. Memoirs have their place, but also people drawing upon their, their lived experiences. Um, I think that these two movements intersect in a really interesting way, um, wherein the idea is everyone should have the right to write a book. And that the only person who can write a story like you would is you. Mm. If you are, for instance, uh, a woman writer, well, there are other women writers, of course, um, and they might also be writing about you know, experiences of, of sexism um, or experiences of, of motherhood, but that doesn't mean they're going to tell it the way the way you would or with your specific intersection. For instance, a, a black woman writing about motherhood would 
write differently than a white woman writing about motherhood. And they would both be women writing about motherhood. Um, I use motherhood as an example because that one's pretty salient. That's not one I have personal experience with, but that one I think is uh, a pretty tangible example. Absolutely. That makes so much sense. And it goes back to what you said in the beginning about, um, you know, the ha- well, the, the hashtag that you're sharing now, like we need diverse books. And what does that mean? We, you shared in the beginning of the podcast, there's just, there weren't many books that you've read that incorporate individuals um, with, uh, on the spectrum or neurodiverse, mm-hmm. et cetera. So this is a way that you can get your lived experience. I recognize that the example of motherhood is perhaps uh, shooting above the, the primary audience of this podcast who are presumably uh, undergraduate students. There are undergraduate students who have children, but I wouldn't call that the majority. So I'm gonna use a different example to you know, sure. give more than one to see if this sticks. Um, let's say you, you and the person next to you get the same prompt. And the prompt is write a story about a cat. One person might get a story about this spoiled lap cat who uh, doesn't want to walk to the food bowl. So their owner gives them their fancy feast right out of their hand. Lovely. It's a story about a cat. Uh, The same person next to you might write warrior cats. Now, for those of you who haven't read warrior cats, it's a story about these like religious cat clans that like kill each other. Warrior cats is very violent. Um, But those are still both stories that come from the same prompt, write about a cat. Right. Oh my goodness. Absolutely. I love that. I love, that's a really salient example that helps so much to think about the differences in something as, as uh, specific as write about a cat and how it can be, you know, so different. It proves you also don't, writing a diverse book doesn't necessarily mean writing a a heavy book or writing a book that has an explicitly political message. I think, I think all writing is inherently uh, political as in there is a message, even in a story that doesn't bill itself as providing a lesson, but you you don't, you don't need to go out there and say, I'm going to write a manifesto about motherhood. You can, you can write about a cat if you'd like. Right. Uh, I love that. So I also yeah. want to give uh, a shout out to one tangible way that the book industry as a whole has, um, has sought to promote uh, diverse authors. The, the BISAC is an acronym that means Book Industry Standards and Communication. Um, every book has several BISAC codes. This is how libraries organize books. Um, and there is a BISAC code called uh, Own Voices. So in order to get the Own Voices BISAC code, you need to be a member of a marginalized group writing about that marginalized group. Yeah. So for instance, um, you could be a uh, Latinx author and you are writing about Latinx characters. Um, now that could be anything from your personal memoir. That could be um, uh, perhaps like a historical thing talking about Latinx experiences over time. It can be, um, you know, fantasy where you have you know Latinx people riding dragons. Those would all be under own voices, and this is a code that is uh, protected. And they take the 
claiming of own voices fraudulently, they take it very seriously. And when I was picking out my own BISAC codes, there were like two different pop-up windows. So I like, you can only select own voices if you, you know, they had the whole definition, um, which one of always is own uh, BISAC codes is own voices because I am an autistic person writing about autistic people. But that's, so, that's, that's interesting. I've never heard of the, so you can't, so you can't click it by mistake. <laughs> right, right, right. Got it. So I am super curious. I'm getting into getting into the BISAC code and um, the we need diverse books. And um, I am I'm curious if you could share with us a little bit about um, one of your favorite one of your one or more of your favorite quotes from the book and why it's one of your favorite. This is a question that is asked actually in the writing process. Um, if you look at, for instance, uh, Amazon pages for books, most book sales in the U.S. happen via Amazon, whether you like it or not, and you can have your opinions. Um, <laughs> most people have uh, a quote from the book um, used to sort of market the book itself. And uh, I, I know mine. Um, so for context, uh, this is perhaps it's a, it's a weird choice, but I picked a a quote from that's part of a larger speech at the end of the book like oh what have we learned um it's the older brother york uh kind of reflecting upon what he and his younger brother uh andreas have learned um i use the example of andreas goes to the story andreas is the point of view character of always and he is the, the main character um to use perhaps some technical jargon uh, York is the duerogonist, so like secondary protagonist. Mm -hmm. So York says, we've always been told that we are the ones who aren't communicating, that we need to use our words or look at people's eyes. We've always been told that we are the ones who are wrong. Okay, so I'm just gonna, I'm gonna say that again. The, the quote is, we've always been told we are the ones who are not communicating that we need to use our words or look at people's eyes we've always been told that we're the ones who are wrong wow okay so tell us tell us about that it's a moment of letting go of guilt and acknowledging a societal pattern so one of my goals I made for myself at Always was I'm going to write a book about autism without mentioning the word autism. Neither York nor Andreas know that they're autistic. They know that they're different, uh, primarily in the way that people interact with them, but they don't have words to explain that. So this, this ending speech is a way of trying to put words to that shared experience that they have uh, across the autistic spectrum. I think across the neurodivergent spectrum even. So at this moment, York is a character who is very much a people pleaser um, and is someone who desires to do right by others. But in the desire to do right by others, he can be self-sacrificing. Um, Andreas, on the other hand, is, uh, I don't think, jaded can be the word for it but in this particular scenario i don't think he's jaded i think he's just more observant mm -hmm. and kind of more accepting of his inability to mask uh as a non-verbal autistic andreas 
has a harder time passing as as normal. Mm-hmm. York can exert a lot of effort to try to mask, but for Andreas, his non-speaking is kind of bars that immediately. So he doesn't ever have the idea of I need to hide who I am because I really can't. And in some ways that's liberating. Um, Absolutely. And the autistic characters, uh, you know, that you said um, previously in our previous conversations, you had said the autistic characters don't know that they are, are, uh, that they are autistic. Is that? They do not, they don't have the words to describe it. They know that they're different and they know that in some ways they're similar. Um, Like you understand me and I understand you and I don't know what's up with everyone else. Um, So they have a community in that sense. And you, and, and you had wanted the reader to really understand that the autistic experience is part of the human experience. Yes. To have this book out there for people to, to read and see it as, and that the solution to the problem isn't, oh man, it sure sucks to be them. Right. York doesn't turn around to his brother and say, well, at least I can pass. Or at least I can talk. Mm-hmm. It's never something that York says to Andreas. And Andreas doesn't ever say to York, well, at least, you know, I have, you know, a modicum of self-confidence and am not dependent on uh, trying to please people who do not care for me in the slightest. Wow. Neither of them say that to each other. This is, I mean, I know you have a number of different characters in the book, non-binary, single parents, um, all of it. So it's, uh, I'm so looking forward to to reading this. Um, Can you share with us what advice you would give to someone who is considering writing a book? Yeah. The most important thing I would impart is this, understand that nothing can disqualify you from telling your own story in whatever form you choose to tell it. Uh, For some people, just book writing isn't the best vector for that story. Um, I think imposter syndrome is the biggest hurdle people face when writing a book. And that can sink a book before it's even set sail. Mm, Um, Yeah. Yeah. Tell us, tell us more about that. People just get in there. What do you feel like with the imposter syndrome? Like you said, it's there. They don't even get to the first draft because what happens? I think this is perhaps a, a targeted thing to my fellow college students. Just because you don't like English class doesn't mean that you can't be a good writer. Um, a lot of the ways that we are educated about literature is analyzing literature and looking for subtext. And I love that. And I think there is value in that. But the way that people read books outside of the classroom, you don't have to feel like you need to compose study questions as you write. And as you write, it is okay if the message is kind of explicit. Like, you aren't necessarily creating a better story if, you know, there is debates for decades after you die about, like, what did they mean when they wrote this? Like, there's a quote from Always where York flat out says, it's not a desperate thing to want to be friends with us. And that's, I said the quiet part out loud (laughs) in that. I love that. 
I love that quote. And it sounds like your message is simple and powerful at the same time, uh, Mm -hmm. which is incredible. And I am so looking forward to reading this. And I'm curious uh, where people can buy your book. (laughs) Yeah. Um, So my book is available on Amazon. Um, I have three copies right now. Now, as I heard anyway, I dropped them off at the beginning of the semester um, at Broadside Books in Northampton. Um, I have always available on the online listing for Barnes & Noble. I am working on getting it in in person uh, for Barnes & Noble, but yeah. Wonderful. So, um, and so again, Kelly's book is always and two words, two words. Yes. <laughs> it's important to know. Uh, and in addition, if you would like to connect with Kelly to learn a little bit more about her process or ask further questions, um, Kelly has a website. Um, the best way to connect is by, would you say Googling? Um, your name? Well, you can just, you can just put in kellycoons.weebly.com. Kellycoons at weebly.com? Dot, dot weebly.com. Dot weebly.com. Thank you, Kelly. Uh, and a few additional resources I'd love to share for any uh, students or uh, students listening today uh, interested in storytelling would be the Narratives Project here at Smith and the Book Studies Concentration, as well as our alumni database and LinkedIn to source other published authors. And just to uh, recap a couple of the external resources for all students and alumni to check out would be uh, the Creator Institute, which is www.creator.institute and the newdegreepress.com. That's www.newdegreepress.com. And those resources assist individuals with getting started writing a book. Kelly, I'm so impressed and honored to um, be able to be able to speak with you today. Uh, I can't thank you enough for taking the time to talk and share with us your process. Yeah, it was uh, fun. And I hope that this causes more Smithies to become authors. Awesome. Thank you, Kelly. We'll talk soon.